BGU Radio. Hi, everybody. Welcome to our show. My name is Yoni Teitelbaum. I'm a PhD student here at the Zuckerberg Institute for Water Research at Ben Gulion University. I'm here with Emily Tran, my fellow PhD student here and a good friend of mine. Uh, she is just wrapping up her PhD studying how nuclear waste moves underground. Emily, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. So nuclear waste moving around underground, that's a pretty scary thought. Um, depends on how you look at it. <laughs> <laughs> how much sleep should I be losing over that thought? Depends on where you're located in the world. Every um, night. <laughs> so why are we even researching this? I mean, I thought that uh, when it comes to nuclear waste, we've already been working with it for, uh, let's say, half a century or more. That we already know how to store it, where to store it, uh, that this is basically a solved problem. So why are we talking about nuclear waste moving around underground? The funny thing is, this, is that there's been a lot of research about how to produce nuclear energy, for instance, but there's been very little or uh, there's been a lot of attempts to figure out what to do with the waste, but currently nearly all of the waste in the world that exists is stored in temporary storage facilities. There's actually only one place in the world, uh, which is Finland, which is actually currently constructing any kind of permanent facility for storing this waste. And all of the waste in the rest of the world is currently waiting to be stored in some sort of permanent location, either a deep underground facility or deep boreholes, which are things we can discuss further on. Um, but right now, no, there's no good solution for it at the moment. So when you say temporary, what does that mean exactly? That can be um, either in cooling pools, which is what uh, waste goes to immediately after uh, it's used in energy production, and then eventually it'll be moved over to um, above-ground storage facilities, either in big silos um, it can also be in shallow disposal, depending on the type of waste, um, but it's all meant to be retrievable at the moment, waste that you can take out of wherever it is currently stored and moved into a more permanent facility. Okay, but you actually don't deal with storage facilities yourself, right? No, not at all. I'm not in any kind of uh, engineering field. I mostly deal with what would happen to waste assuming that something has gone wrong and assuming the waste has already made it into the subsurface, how would it behave in the subsurface? And when you say behave, can you elaborate a little bit? Yeah. Um, so is the waste mobile or does it stay in place? That's the essence of it. Um, so there's a lot of different factors that influence whether that waste is mobile or not. Uh, one of those is, is it a dissolved species or is it uh, solid? Is it something that's precipitated out in solution, um, either as a colloid or it's precipitated out and it's sorbed to the side of whatever host rock that the nuclear repository is contained in? Um, so there's a lot of different factors that can kind of go into that. So uh, what are some of those factors that determine how it behaves in the subsurface? So it depends a lot on the geochemistry and this particular radionuclide. Um, so for something like uranium, uh, if you have a lot of carbonate and dissolved calcium on the subsurface, it can form this this complex. We call it a urinal carbonate complex. Uh, and it's really soluble. And that means that you're going to have uranium that's just moving the same way that dissolved salts would in the subsurface. Um, but it's only in that form if you have a lot of carbonate and calcium that's present to begin with. 
uh, under different circumstances, if you don't have that, then the uranium might be more likely to sorb to the side of the rock and not be mobilized as a dissolved species. So another thing that could potentially influence the behavior or the mobility of these uh, radionuclides in the subsurface is something called colloids. And those are just microparticles that are present in the subsurface naturally. We have it in all of our groundwater. Um, they could be composed of either a mineral, something like a clay. There's also organic matter that is naturally present in the subsurface. And those microparticles have an ability to uh, interact with radionuclides that are in the subsurface. And if those colloids are mobile, that means that anything that interacts with them is also going to be mobile. And that's something that we called colloid facilitated transport. So that's been the focus of a lot of our research. So when you talk about a colloid being mobile, is that just dependent on its size or is that some chemical properties or uh, what uh, makes that determination? It can be. Um, there's a few different factors. Size is definitely one of them. If you have a really big colloid, it's going to get filtered out really easily as it makes it through little pore spaces. You know, think of a sieve that you have a particle that might get stuck as it moves through the sieve. But if you have a small enough one, it'll pass right through. Um, if you have, you have to also have geochemically favorable conditions for these colloids to move. So if you have high salinities, it's been shown that colloids will flocculate, flocculate out. And that sort of means that they'll form a goo and they'll just kind of sink to the bottom of the surface, so to the bottom of the water column, and they won't move anywhere. But if you have lower salinities, sometimes that'll actually stabilize things that might previously be immobile. So that actually might create more potential movement of any radionuclides that are interacting with them. So in general, when it comes to radionuclides, we want them to be less mobile. Is that correct? So that they don't uh, spread around. Is that right? Yeah, for sure. You don't want them making them their way into aquifers that are surrounding. And certainly you want to avoid as many interaction with, interactions with the biosphere as possible. And so what are some of the ways in which you yourself have researched this? What are some of the experiments that you've done? So we do mostly laboratory scale experimental studies in which we take uh, known concentrations of radionuclide analogs, mostly things that are not actually radio radioactive themselves, uh, but things that have similar chemical properties. And we inject them into a fractured chalk rock that we have uh, in our laboratory. Um, and we inject them at a known flow rate. We basically push them through this fracture and then you get a bunch of samples coming out over time at the end of that uh, fracture. And you can analyze those samples as a factor of time and kind of see how the concentration changes over time. Uh, and you can interpolate those data and look at how uh, mobile the, the radionuclide or their analog was as it was moving through the core. And so how long of a time scale are we talking about for this kind of motion? So in real life, you're looking at millions of years because you want to know how mobile the radionuclide would be uh, until it deteriorates into something that is no longer radi radioactive. Um, so certain isotopes there, you know, you have some fast de decaying isotopes such as cesium-137, which is only about 37 years or so, um, but you have much longer radionuclide uh, half-lives that might range from hundreds of thousands up to millions of years. Um, so you really want to know if it's going to be mobile in the long term. Now, in the lab, we can't do that. So we have to just look at what factors affect it or not. 
Um, and we don't have any kind of long-term models that show, okay, well, what we see in the lab is necessarily upscalable to any kind of actual uh, real-life timescale. And so the pieces of rock that you work with in the lab, how big are they? Uh, the rock fracture itself is about 30 centimeters long. Um, so it's not too big. It's less than a meter. Um, but we want to know ultimately how mobile things would be over the span of kilometers. That would be the ideal for researchers to understand. And so for this 30 centimeter chunk of rock, how long does it take for, for these materials to make it through? I mean, is it minutes, well, hours, we're, days? Well, we're doing um, experiments that we're capped at two days, basically. So we're purposely injecting it at a flow rate that is way faster than it would be in the ground. Uh, in the subsurface, you would have more like less than a meter a year. Like a meter a year would be really screaming through at, at these kinds of depths. So what we're looking at is you know, a super speedy rendition of what might happen in the subsurface because just that's what we have. That's, I would never be able to finish my PhD if I tried <laughs> to do this at a realistic flow rate. Okay, so the focus of your research is nuclear waste, but you're doing your research in the water department here at the Zuckerberg Institute for Water Research. That's correct. Uh, so what what's the connection? So in order for any of these radionuclides to be mobile, you need it to be moving in water. If you have an entirely dry subsurface and there's no water there, then there's no medium in which they can be mobile. So you assume that they're going to be totally stuck where they are. Um, so basically we're looking at transport in water. So would it be fair to say that uh, these processes that transport the waste, these are processes that occur anyway, right? Uh, as far as, uh, you know, flow of groundwater. Yeah, um, for sure. I mean, that's this is the same kind of process that you'd look at for any other kind of contaminant transport or even non-contaminants for that matter. You can use the same kinds of logic um, to look at salts flowing through the subsurface or tracers. If you just want to understand where groundwater comes from and where it goes, you can inject just a, you know, benign tracer that's not going to hurt anyone and you'd use the same kind of logic and the same kind of equations in order to understand what the mobility of that water is in the subsurface. So uh, changing course a little bit. So uh, if you're talking about nuclear waste behaving differently based on the geochemical properties of its environment, uh, presumably that means that there are rocks that are better or worse for storing nuclear waste? Yeah, for sure. Um, so... What's unique about our research is that we're looking specifically at carbonate rocks, um, and that includes chalks and dolomites um, and limestones. And that's basically what we have here in Israel. Now, most places in the world that are doing similar research are looking at granitic subsurfaces, places like Switzerland and Sweden and Finland. Um, there's some research that's been done on mudstones, uh, on tuff um, and salt domes out in the U.S., and you have in the Weist Isolation Pilot Plant, um, but no, almost no one in the world is looking specifically at carbonate-type rocks. Um, and we're doing that simply because that's what we have in Israel. That's what's available in the unpopulated Negev Desert. Um, and that makes our research really unique. Now, in terms of if it's advantageous or not, that's kind of what we're trying to understand. Um, and it really depends on the specific radionuclide that you're looking at. So like I said, I mentioned before the, con the um, case of uranium. If you have a lot of 
things that would come in carbonate rock, your calcium and your carbonate, then you're going to actually have more mobile uranium. So that might be a disadvantage in some cases. However, you also have, in some cases, much higher salinities. We actually have mostly brackish water here in the Negev Desert, and that means that colloids are going to be, or these microparticles I talked about, are going to be less mobile. They're going to flocculate out and become that goo and become filtered, and anything that's associated with them is not going to be mobile. So it really depends on the specific case and the specific radionuclide that you're looking to store um, in that specific location. Now... Uh, you were talking about the fact that these processes take place over anywhere from tens of thousands to uh, millions of years. Do you have to take into account changes in the rock structure when you're when you're doing your research? Because I mean that's a long time, and presumably the the rock gets deformed. Uh, mm-hmm, for sure. So that's a great question. I. In my research, personally, I don't, um, but we're part of a much larger collaboration uh, where we're working with a group of Americans, and there's people who are working on this project also from the Geological Survey of Israel and the Nuclear Research Center of the Negev. Uh, And there is one particular research group that is doing exactly that, that they're looking on uh, the rock geomorphology um, and specifically how um, the repositories themselves would change the rock structure surrounding them uh, and the fracturing patterns. Again, that's not my field specifically, but that's definitely a part of the bigger picture that needs to be investigated. So you mentioned fracturing patterns. Can you explain the importance of fracturing rock fractures to all of Of this? Of rock fractures in general, of the fracturing processes themselves, that's not my area of expertise. But the actual rock fractures are important because that's the way that water moves in the subsurface in rocks. It doesn't really move through the rock matrix itself where the permeability and porosity is much, much less. Most of the majority of the porosity of rocks is contained within fractures. And that's where most of water and contaminants contained within that water are going to flow through. Um, So that's why it's really important to understand fracture flow, um, especially looking at dangerous contaminants like that. Got it. So we've talked a lot about nuclear waste and how to store it, but are there any alternatives to storing the waste in the first place? So to some degree, some of the waste is going to need to be stored no matter what. But there is new research that's coming out on reprocessing this waste. And actually, because the waste is still technically hot and it's still decaying, you could theoretically take advantage of that heat and energy that still exists in the waste product and turn that into more energy. So some researchers out there are currently developing new uh, nuclear power plants that take advantage of spent fuel from older style plants and try to turn that into usable energy. So that's one one possible option for what you could do with the waste rather than putting it into an irretrievable storage facility. Last question, uh, what are the takeaways from your research? Who might look at your research and think to themselves, this is useful, and what would they take from it? So what's really unique about our research, like I mentioned before, is that we're working specifically with carbonate rocks. Um, And while there's many, many researchers in the world that are working on uh, transport and college facility to transport of radionuclides, there's almost nobody that's working Uh, in the carbonate rock matrix. Um, So I guess the takeaway is that in certain instances, 
certain types of carbonate rocks might be um, a feasible rock type for storage. Um, we can't say that with certainty about every case and about every radionuclide type, but under certain circumstances, it might be a feasible alternative to the more traditional rock types. All right, Emily Tran, thank you very much for joining us. Thank you very much for having me. BGU Radio. BGU Radio. BGU Radio.